We're in Romans chapter 11 this morning. As the children scurry off to their classes. <clears throat> I want to read the first six verses once again, and we'll continue in our study. Uh, do a little background, then pick up on uh, verse 2 there. Um, beginning in verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Um, The underlying principle when we come to the Word of God to study it is to understand that it can be trusted. And we looked a little bit about that last week, that the Word of God can be trusted. The idea that God keeps His Word. He doesn't make promises to us just willy-nilly and then kind of go on with His own thing and forget about what He promised us or His chosen people Israel. Uh, If he says something, that is exactly what he means to say, and that is precisely what will come to pass. And so Paul begins this chapter here in chapter 11, and he asks the simple question, because in chapters 9 and 10, he said, well, not all Israel is going to be saved. And so he comes to chapter 11, and he says, does that mean that God has totally rejected them as his people? And he says... I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he gives a hearty, no way, no. And he goes on and he basically gives evidence of why. But we go all the way back to the, the, one of the prophets of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, who ministered basically during the time um, when Israel was held captive and they were taken Um, Because of their disobedience and and what was going on, they were taken down to Babylon for 70 years. And they were set free and they were to come back to the land. And upon coming back to that uh, land, they wanted to rebuild and restore the city, restore the temple. And they did, went on to do that. Uh, During this time, though, um, there was this prophet, Zechariah. And um, he, he reminded Israel, basically, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we looked at the covenants last week. And so if you, didn't, if you missed that, you can get that message. And we went over some of these covenants last week. But he says in Genesis 12, whoever blesses you, speaking of Israel, will be blessed. And whoever curses you will be cursed. And so Zechariah and many other prophets uh, gave a message relative really to speaking to the judgment of God upon anybody who would set their nation or their heart or their hand against Israel. And in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 it says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And as I was listening to part of MacArthur's message this past week, he pointed out these following three things about the, the phrase, the apple of his eye. And I thought it was very telling because in the English, it just says the apple of his eye. But in the Hebrew, it has a different connotation. And the first one where we see this apple of his eye phrase is back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. And it says there, I'll just read it for you. He found him in the desert, in the hollowing waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. And that expression, he goes on to say, means little man of the eye. 
That's literally what it means. That's a very graphic description of what that phrase means, the apple of his eye. It means the little man of his eye. Israel is the little man of God's eye. Okay. I'm going to have to use my lungs this morning, I can tell. When you get close enough to someone to look into their, right into their eye, you invariably see what? A reflection of yourself. See, and as you see a reflection of yourself in the pupil, I'm sure you men have all looked and stared and gazed into the, your wife's eyes and you saw a little you, okay? Little mini me there. Um, it's a reduced stature of yourself. And the one way that the Hebrews used to describe this pupil not, was basically to say, you know what, there's a little man in the eye. That's how they used to describe it. So Israel is called the little man in God's eye. And he goes on and he says the second way that this term is used is in Psalm 17.8. And in that verse, the psalmist says, the apple of his eye, but it's, it really is referring to the little daughter of the eye. <laughs> so everybody gets equal treatment with the Lord here. Um, and so both expressions came to understand that there was a reflection of someone in, in the eye, the human eye. And in Zechariah 2.8, the one we just read, the apple of his eye, it's a completely different phrase. And what he says it means is basically the gate of the eye. It's that portion of the eye that allows the light in, the retina of the eye. And it describes a very visible part of the human eye. So whether you're talking about the little man of the eye, the little daughter of the eye, or the gate of the eye, basically what it's saying is, you know what? If you come against my chosen people, Israel, God is saying, it's like you're poking your finger in my eye which is very critical for people to understand. That's why it's so important to understand that what happens with, na- with, with nations concerning Israel is very important. The Bible says very clearly, if you come against Israel, you will not be under the favor of God. And you look at the many nations who have gone against Israel, and you look at where they're at, uh, a lot of them need a lot of help. And our country is no different, by the way. That's one of the things when you go to the polls. How do they view Israel when you vote? That should be one of the top things on your list. How does this candidate view Israel? Very important to understand that. It's critical to the future of our country. Because God cares for Israel. Israel has that unique relationship with God. And when you harm Israel, it's like you're poking your finger in God's eyes. And he says, well, MacArthur goes on and he shares practically what's the outcome of this. He says, basically, what does it say about God's relationship to Israel? He says, first of all, it says that they're very precious. Are your eyes precious? Would you sell me one of your eyes for $10,000? $100,000? Somebody said yes. Okay. <laughs> Little Dax, we got to talk to you there. Or Eli. Or whatever. Yeah, it's, um, but if you stop and think about it. Even a million dollars, you wouldn't give away your eyes. No way. I mean, they're precious. Why? Because they allow you to see what's going on. So he says they're very, it's, Israel's very precious to God. Secondly, the idea that he, they're the apple of God's eye, it really refers to the idea that Israel can be um, easily injured. Easily injured. You look at this tiny little nation. It's very vulnerable over there. I mean, their own jets can't even, you know, that's why they're always getting in trouble flying into other airspace. Well, there's nowhere else to fly. I mean, it's such a small area. And you think about the, the, the anatomy of the human eye and how they're exposed. They're very vulnerable. That's why when you do work of any kind, you know, whether it's yard work, they always say, oh, make sure you have eye protection. Why? Because your eyes can be very easily injured. But the third thing he points out is that the eye is that part of the body that is probably one of the, the more protected, carefully protected parts. Think about it. It's sunken back in an eye socket surrounded by hard mass, hard bones. So if you hit somebody with a board in the face, 
It's going to hit the bone before it hits the eye usually. You have an eyelid that protects it, provides its moisture. You have eyebrows and and eyelashes to keep the dust out. It's a very protected part of our anatomy. And so is Israel. God is protected by the Lord himself. And when you stop and think about it, if you go against Israel, you're going against God, the one who protects his chosen people. So when you go to Zechariah or Deuteronomy or Psalm, any, Psalm 17, any one of these, Israel is very precious, very easily injured, and carefully protected. But there's also a psalm over Psalm 105, <clears throat> verse 8. Psalm 105, verse 8, it says this, and this is basically speaking of God's relationship with Israel, but Psalm 105, verse 8, it says, He has remembered his covenant forever. That's the promise that he made with Israel. We looked at that last week. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. And so all those people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, had this covenant repeated with them. And it says, which covenant was made to the nation as an everlasting covenant, saying, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when they were but a few men in number. Yea, very, and sojourns in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he permitted no man to do them wrong. He reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Now, how many of you heard the word of faith teachers? Oh, don't touch the anointed, you know. Well, they got their scriptures mixed up a little bit, I think. But anyway, speaking of Israel and the prophets of Israel. And so when the psalmist says this, he says God is going to establish Israel, and he's going to protect Israel. Israel, clearly. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 10, it says this, All the nations of the earth shall see that you are called by my name, speaking of Israel, and they shall be afraid of you. Verse 13 goes on, it says, And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and not only go up and not down, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today, be being careful to do them. So he's going to make all these nations, Israel is going to be the head. You think about it today in the world, Israel, you can't open up a newspaper without reading something about Israel. It has a unique place in the world. And so Israel is the apple of God's eye. Israel is anointed by God. And it's by design the head of all nations in terms of this unique blessing. There's nobody else that really can claim that. And so when you stop and you think about that, some people say, well, but Israel hasn't held up its end of the bargain. Israel hasn't obeyed the commands of God. And so does that mean, back to Romans 11, that God has rejected Israel? And Paul says in verse 1, absolutely not. God has not rejected Israel. God has not replaced Israel with the church. Don't believe those People who say that, and you say, well, why? Because God always has a remnant. God always has a group of people left behind. And that's what he points out here. And he says, first of all, Paul says, I know that, and this is all review. First of all, because of God's person, Paul, he gives his own testimony there. He says in verse 1, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite. All right, he points that out. Why is he doing that? Because he said, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm not rejected. I have a relationship with God. If God just hands down rejected Israel and the Jewish people, I'd have a problem. And he said, I'm not rejected. And so he's giving himself, he's offering himself up as testimony that God is faithful to his people. We also looked at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people 
for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So the evidence is, first of all, Paul's, Paul's testimony. See, the good thing, when it refers to his people, guess what? Guess who's included in that? If you're not Jewish, you and I are if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're included. We're part of God's people. He adopts us. He grafts us in. And that's what he says there in verse 2. We talked about God's people. He says, God has not rejected his people. And we talked about the importance of understanding that Israel has been chosen by God. Why? We don't know. But that's exactly what the Bible says. Just like as believers, we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And so when you stop and think about it, he says there's a remnant left behind. First of all, it's the apostle Paul. That's the evidence. It's, the evidence is that, there's a God, that God has chosen Israel to be his people. And then last week, we finally got to the end of verse 2 where it talks about God's plan. Because it says these are God's people whom he foreknew. And we talked a little bit about what does that mean. And we came to understand that it doesn't mean that God is looking down through the corridors of time and decides what he's going to do based on what we do. Like he's telling the future or something. The reason that can't be true is because there is no future with God. God transcends time. There's no yesterday, there's no tomorrow. Now you say, well, I don't understand that. Well, neither do I. But that's what the Bible says. Okay? And so when it says things like, well, a day is like a thousand years, it's just saying, you know what? Time is irrelative to God. It has, has no bearing at all on his plan or his purpose. And we talked about that word foreknew, and we basically de- defined it as a predetermination to love somebody. God predetermined to love Israel before there even was an Israel. Just like he predetermined to love us before there ever even was an us. And that word he uses there is prognosco, and it basically has the idea of knowing in a relationship way beforehand. It talks about a caring relationship. It's not like, oh, I, I know President Obama. I know who he is. No, I don't know President Obama. I've never spoken to the man personally. I've never had coffee with him. I've never, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to sit down and talk with him. But I, I've never been able to do that. So I don't have a relationship with President Obama. But I know who he is. See, it's not talking about that kind of knowledge. It's talking about the kind of relationship that's an intimate love relationship. And so what Paul is saying here is God has not pushed away his people. He has not rejected them because he already has predetermined to love them. And that's what it says back in Deuteronomy, that I have predetermined to set my love upon you. So he's foreordaining a relationship with you before there even was a you, just like he did with Israel. Now we go through this chapter, a lot of it speaks of Israel, but a lot of it can be transferred over and applied to us as Christians. Even though Israel's going through a hard time, even though Israel's in a state of unbelief right now. Basically, across the board, as a nation, they're not believing in the Messiah. They're not believing in God to save them. They've trusted their own self-righteousness, their own works of righteousness. And even in that state, God says, no, I haven't rejected them. Just like the Bible says that, you know what, God loved us and while we were what? Yet sinners. He didn't say, well, you got to go get cleaned up first, then I'll love you. No, he didn't say that. He says, I'm going to love you even while you're still steeped in your sin. I'm going to set my love on you, and I'm going to see to it that you are saved, that you come to repentance. I'm going to work that out in your life. The Bible says that before we loved God, God loved us. And so it's a very important point to make. In Amos chapter 3, we looked at verse 2, and it says, Israel only have I known. And so Israel is not cast off. And you say, well, what's the proof? The proof is in Paul, the remnant still left behind, his people, his plan. And then as we come to today, he says at the end of verse 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So we get through our little outline and we get down to basically God's prophet, Elijah. And so I want to spend a little bit of time speaking about 
prophets. What are they? Um, Because under Moses' leadership, God's people were about to enter the land, and God gave them very uh, exact instructions and how to deal with supernatural guidance and all this thing. Because these, these people in Canaan, they, they practiced witchcraft. They, they consulted spiritualists. They used all kinds of divine things that were outside the bounds as far as God is concerned. And all that kind of information was forbidden to God's people. Because they had his word to live by and so in this, this passage here, the people of Israel were promised that when God wanted to communicate with them, he would raise up a prophet. And if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see this, verses 9 to 22. He would raise up a prophet. That's how God spoke to his people. And these people were to be, these prophets were to be spokesmen for God. And so they would take the word of God as they received it and they relayed it to the people. And the people would listen and the people would be encouraged to obey. Because this wasn't the words just of this prophet. It was the very word of God coming out of his mouth. And so there was a couple general guidelines for prophets out of this text in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 22. In verse 15, first of all, it says there that the prophet was to be from among your own brothers. Basically, what that means is, you know what? You can't go outside the bounds of this nation and, and, and kind of see what they're doing over here as pagans. You don't want to bring their prophets over. You don't want the prophets of Baal, all right, that were pagan in nature to come in and start prophesying to your people. That's off bounds. So there has to be somebody from amongst your own. And then secondly, he says, the prophet would speak in the name of the Lord in verses 20 to 22. So literally, when the prophet is speaking, he's literally speaking God's word. He's speaking by the authority of God himself. And by the way, any prophet who claimed to have supernatural message to communicate, but delivered it as a message from another God other than the God of Israel, they would kill him because they were a false prophet. And then the third thing is the prophet would predict events. God would give them the ability to know what's, to be able to kind of see what's happening and be able to communicate that to the people. But even then, if you were a self-proclaimed prophet and you told a certain event and it didn't happen, you were a false prophet and basically you would be killed. And so it was very serious. God took these, this role of prophets in the Old Testament very, very serious. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, there was even an additional test, if those weren't enough, It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. So they're telling something that's happening in the future, and it's actually happening. What the prophet said came to pass. But look at what it says in verse 3. It says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if the prophet truly spoke for God, his message would be in full harmony with all the previous revelation that came from God. And that's important for us to remember even today. Just like it was for Israel, for Judah. There are supernatural powers, beloved, in conflict with God. 
I mean, just because some, some miracle happens, that doesn't mean it's from God. We have to remember that. A miraculous event or a, a fulfilled prediction is not in itself proof that God is behind him. Think of all the, the, the people that do all the tarot cards, all this crazy stuff. You have spiritualists and all kinds of stuff that people talk to. And sometimes those things actually are verified. It's like, wow, they said this was going to happen, and it did. And people are all intrigued with that. Well, the enemy can, can kind of provide that as well. And we have to remember that, that he is what? A, a masquerade. He's an angel of light. And so where the word of God from these prophets is in conflict with the messenger, the word is to be given um, unquestioned precedent. Precedent, Like if, if, if somebody stood up in our church and said, oh, you know what? God gave me a revelation. Jesus Christ is not his son. And God has no son. Okay, would we say, oh, wow, that's pretty intense. No, we would say, sit down, get out. You don't have a place here. We don't want to hear your revelation because it's not coming from God. Why? Because the Word of God clearly says that God has a Son and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, we have to always be reminded as believers to go back to the Word of God and verify what we're hearing. It doesn't matter whether we're reading a book, whether we're listening to a message, whether we're, whatever we're doing. Make sure you verify what you're understanding through the Word of God. And that even deals with your own emotions. Don't ever trust your emotions. If you trust your emotions, your feelings, you're going to be in sore, sore luck. Because your emotions will lie to you just as soon as, you know. I mean, how many times have your emotions said, you know what, you're no good. You call yourself a Christian, look at this, look at that. Look at what's going on in your life. You begin to believe that. You begin to think, well, you know, that's true. You know, things aren't going oh well in my life. And wow, I'm just, yeah, who, who am I, you know? You know, I'm, I don't even think I'm going to come to church anymore because I just don't feel qualified. I don't feel, you know, whatever. You've got to stop and say, well, wait a minute, what does the Word of God say? The Word of God says that, you know what, I, I came to the Lord in repentance and ask for forgiveness of my sins and I know that he saved me and I know that I'm a child of the, the Most High God. I know that my sins are forgiven past, present, future. I know that I'm secure in Christ. I know that God is not my enemy. He's my friend now through Christ. I mean, you, you have a very unique position as one of his children. Don't allow the enemy to take advantage of your emotions so that you begin to feel other things that are not true. Because Israel did know counterfeit prophets, just like we have counterfeit teachers today. There were men who prophesied in the name of an idol. Look at it today in 1 Kings 18. Other men pretended to be prophets to win the favor of people like rulers like Ahab in 1 Kings 22. The false prophets would give the king the message that he wanted to hear. Others very possibly spoke in God's name but were sharing messages from a different source. They didn't agree with the prophecies that were already foretold. And this is a time of a lot of prophetic activities going on. You know, the days of Ahab and Jezebel. It might have been easy to con get confused over who the true prophets were and who the false prophets were. And so there's certain indicators, there's certain markers. And we come here to Romans and we see, well, there's this prophet by the name of Elijah. Well, how do we know he was from God? Well... The Word of God points out a couple things. I'll just share seven of them with you. The number of miraculous signs that happened in Elijah's ministry really 
happened to authenticate Elijah as God's spokesman. I'll just give you seven of these here. In 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah's word stops the rains with a word. That's a pretty incredible thing. 1 Kings 17, 14, Elijah's promise multitudes a widow's food. In Elijah 17, 21, or in uh, 1 Kings, excuse me, 17, 21, Elijah's prayer restores the widow's son to life. In 1 Kings 18, 38, Elijah's prayer, we're going to look at this today, calls down fire from, uh, on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18.41, Elijah's word restores rain to the land. So he turns off the spigot, he turns it back on. Elijah calls down fire on the soldiers, 2 Kings 1.12. Elijah divides the waters of the Jordan, 2 Kings 2.8. So is Elijah a prophet from God? Yes, he is. See, and in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, it says, For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. So you have here the nation of Israel, and God is saying, you know what? Yeah, you're scattered, but I, I'm going I'm to bring you back together. He says, But of you I will make a full end. I will discipline you. In just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So, throughout Israel's history, there have been times when they've been disobedient to God. You know, it's kind of like parent, you know, when you're out in the grocery store and you're with your kids and your kids are behaving, and you look across the aisle and there's a little kid that's throwing a temper tantrum because he can't get a piece of candy, and his parents are doing absolutely nothing. And he's just throwing a major fit. You know, you begin to feel pretty good about yourself. You're pushing your little cart. You got your three little kids. You know, you're going, hey, this is, you know, look at it. Look at them. You're not going to go over there and go, hey, straighten up. What are you doing? You know, you need to obey your, you're not going to do that. Why? That's not your kid. You're not going to discipline somebody else who's not your children, especially when you don't have their permission to do so, Right? It's just not your concern. I mean, you may feel sorry for the parents. You may even pray for them. Pray for the kid. Who knows? But you're not going to walk over there and go, hey, you know, you need to straighten up. And I mean, even the parents would not appreciate that. Hence, they're not disciplining their, their own children. They're not going to appreciate somebody else disciplining them. Trust me. As a youth pastor, I tried that a couple of times. It didn't work out too well. <laughs> so I'm speaking from experience. Um, my point is, is that you're concerned about your kids. Why? Because they have a relationship with you. If they step out of, out of place, you're going to discipline them. Why? Because you love them. Same thing with Israel. So every time we see Israel stepping out of God's boundaries, God brings discipline into their life. And so Paul says, well, has he rejected Israel? No, he hasn't. And why? Because of me, my personal testimony, Paul, they're God's people, the God's plan. And now we come to this part where he speaks of Elijah, the prophet Elijah. You look at his appeal in verse two. It says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So this is a prophet of God praying against God's people. (laughs) And it says there in verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. And that might be a concern for Elijah because he was one. Okay. If they're out there killing prophets and he's a prophet, that might be a little concern. They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Well, let's jump back here to uh, 1 Kings and read this account of what's going on here. So we can have a full understanding of this prophet and uh, this showdown in Mount Carmel here. But his appeal, basically, he's saying, God, you know what? They're not doing what's right in your eyes. And we've seen that over and over and over again. Chapter 10, verse 1, basically says, Israel's not saved of Romans. 10, 2 says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge Chapter or verse 3 of chapter 10, Romans, says that they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They haven't submitted to it, but they tried to establish their own. 
And so it's very important that we understand that God in no way is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're all good. No, they're being disobedient. <clears throat> and so we see here in verse uh, chapter 18 of 1 Kings what's going down with this prophet. And it's just an incredible story. And you can read the, the surrounding text later. But look at, at verse, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was, so, was severe in, in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So you can see there's a lot of prophetic things going on here in this time. And Ahab, verse 5, said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we'll find grass and save the horses and and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab uh, went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, verse 9, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? All right, Ahab's not a good guy. (laughs) Verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they, may not, uh, that they had not found you. Verse 11. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he's going to kill me. Although I, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. So you can kind of see it's kind of a precarious situation for Obadiah. And it says there in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, look at what he says. Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baal. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, and, uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah says, you know what, bring them all. We're going to have a showdown, the OK Corral here. Verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? In other words, he's basically saying, look, you know what? You have have true prophets and you have false prophets. You have pagan gods and you have the true God. Why are you wavering here? I think that's a good message for the church today. Why do we waver so many times? When God says one thing, well, you know, it's probably okay if I do this. (laughs) Well, no, it's probably not okay. If God forbids it, you shouldn't be doing it. And so he goes on there, and he basically says, you know what, why are you, you know, 
wavering here. And then he says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, just make up your mind. Don't play this game. Don't, don't pretend you're coming to church calling yourself a Christian when you're living like the devil the rest of the week. I mean, just call it for what it is. I mean, that's basically what, what he's kind of pointing out to them. If the Lord is God, who, which he is, then follow him. But if you want to believe this hocus-pocus stuff, then follow them. And it says, and the people did not answer him a word. Why do you think that is? <laughs> they were guilty, right? They knew exactly what he was saying. It's like the kid that gets caught stealing cookies out of the cookie jar, you know. He's got crumbs all over his shirt and half a cookie in his hand. What do you have to say for yourself, young man? Ah, you know, what are they supposed to say? Oh, they're pretty good, Mom. I mean, come on. They got caught. And so, verse 22, it says, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Yet two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. We're going to do a sacrifice thing here. But put no fire on it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you know what? And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the true God. And the God who answers by fire will make the decision that he is God. And all the people says, well, that's a pretty good deal. It's well spoken. They rolled up their sleeves, got to work, did as he said. Then Elijah, verse 25, said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it. In other words, I don't want to have any hocus pocus here. I don't want to have anybody saying, oh, you cheated. You do it all yourself. For you are many and call upon the name of your God. But you know what? You can't put any fire to it. So they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But guess what? There's no voice. No one answered. And look at what it says. It says, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Pitiful sight. Verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. (laughs) Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or maybe he's relieving himself. (laughs) Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe you need to make a little more noise. Look at what it says in verse 28. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves. After their custom, pagan custom, thinking somehow injuring their own body would appease their God. You know, that's not too far from even some Christian churches today. You know, you can go down to Mexico around Easter time and see people doing just that, cutting themselves, crawling with crosses on their back for miles and miles. It's a pitiful sight, trying to earn God's favor. It says they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Very descriptive. And as midday passed, verse 29, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one even paid attention. When you stop and think about what we do sometimes instead of just doing what God tells us to do. I mean, he just simply says, you know what? I'm here for you. You just cry out to me. I I care for you. I love you. I don't care what kind of fix you're in. I don't care what stupid thing you've done. You come to me. You confess that. And you know what? I'm I'm here. We're going to deal with it. But so many times we're like these people. We go trying to fix it ourselves. We're doing other things. and, 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 And God is still patiently waiting and sometimes when we're doing all those things, it's not fixing anything because nobody's paying attention. God is saying, hey, that's not going to work because I don't want it to work. I want you to come to me first and foremost. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. 
and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah then took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain uh, two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, I've started a lot of fires in my day barbecues, whatnot. I never started a fire by dousing the barbecue coals or the, or the wood with a bunch of water. That wouldn't make any sense. Verse 34, and he said, do it a second time. Once is not enough. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they're probably thinking, really? There's a little overkill here, you know. They did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So you basically just have this giant watery mess. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, uh, Elijah the prophet came near, and look at what he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, being very clear here to indicate who he's calling on, let it be known this day that you are the God that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. See, Elijah wasn't up there doing some big show. He wasn't in there for the glory He was in there, even when it says, hey, help them see that I am your messenger. You know, that didn't didn't reside in his ability to be a prophet. He was totally reliant upon God. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Even as we're called to minister within the body of Christ, we don't do this of our own volition. We don't do this of of our own power. It's the power of God working through us, as Paul says. So it says in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I just, <laughs> I mean, there's one place in the Bible where I just wish I could have been there. Incredible. I mean, I wonder how many people sat there and said, this is ridiculous. You know, he really thinks this is going to happen. And even if fire did fall, it's not going to burn up. It's all wet. It says, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. Not only that, but it consumed the wood. Not only that, but it also consumed the, the stones and the dust. And it evaporated. It licked up all the water that was in the trench. So, I mean, we're talking about a, uh, a pretty incredible moment here. In verse 39, it says, And when all the people saw it, they worshipped Elijah. No. It says, They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, you always know a true prophet. You always know a a, a trusted uh, servant of the Lord when the glory goes to God and not that person. See, when you you have people in ministry today, I think, that are very much glory hounds. You know, it's all about them. It's all about their name and and the the way they do things and and people follow them as personalities. It's really a personality cult within the church, if you ask me. Celebrity kind of mentality as far as ministry goes. That has no place before God. That God receives the glory. So they fell on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize these prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. In other words, there's no mercy here at all. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Notice it says Elijah did that. I mean, that's a lot of prophets right and one, one other prophet you can tell who's winning this 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 game here this this contest 
And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, for there is sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up and eat, eat, to eat and drink, and Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, and he looked, and he said, there's nothing. He said, well, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And he's probably thinking, ah, there hasn't been rain. What are, you, what are you talking about? Verse 45, and in a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now Ahab, verse chapter 19, told Jezreel, Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Open threat against God's prophet. And when you stop and you think, here's Elijah doing what God wants him to do. He has this great victory on Mount Carmel. He slaughters all these prophets. And one bad woman sends him a message. And he, he collapses. All right. Now, it, it's kind of a, a, a crazy um, thing when you stop and think about what, what is going on here with Elijah. You know, a lot of times when you have victories in your life, when you have something you've come through, maybe it's been a difficult time, God's brought you through it, and you're kind of, wow, you're, you're on top of, of the mountain. You know, you think everything's going to be, be great. That's when you're most vulnerable. That's exactly what the enemy knows. And that's exactly what happened here to Elijah. And in, back to, to Romans, he says there, you know what? He makes this appeal, hey, they killed your prophets. They demolished your altars. And he says, you know what? I am the only one that's left. So he points out, first of all, all these horrible things that they did. And he's right in doing this. He he emphasized that he was the only one left. By the way, that wasn't true. So his emotions were lying to him, right? He felt like he was the only one left. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe you feel you're the, the only couple that has marital issues. Don't believe that lie. <laughs> Every couple has marital issues. It's married. I mean, think about it. You're taking two sinners. You're putting them together for the rest of their lives and say, hey, live in, in harmony. I mean, you know, that, that's not going to happen without God's intervention, clearly. And so you need to be reliant upon God. But don't think you're the only couple or maybe you bad, made bad decisions in your life. Don't think you're the only person. Don't allow the enemy to make you believe that. Because when you start to believe that, that you're the only one, what happens? You just close up. And pretty soon, you know what? You're not coming to church. Why? Because you don't feel worthy to come to church and you don't, you don't want people to know what's going on in your life. So you just kind of stay away from everybody. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells us to do as the body of Christ. That when we come together, we should have a, a, a body that's transparent. You know... Don't be marching in here Sunday morning with a big pearly white smile on your face when you just got done fighting with your wife and kids in the car. There's nothing wrong with coming to this place and when someone asks you, hey, how's your week going? How are you doing today? There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I need some prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody's going to judge you because you, you're not, you know, oh, everything's good. Everything's good, you know. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, God sees our hearts just the way we are. And if we can't be honest with each other in the body of Christ, who can we be honest with? Who can we be transparent with? And so he points out all these things that they've done. He emphasizes that he's the only one left. And he says, you know what? She's going to kill me. I'm going to be dead. This is a guy that just killed hundreds of prophets. I mean, think about it. It just doesn't make any sense. And they seek my life. Verse 4, 
But what is God's reply to him? Does God say, yeah, you know what, <laughs> Elijah, you're, you're in a war to her, pal. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you. Aren't you glad we don't have a God like that? He says, what is God's reply? He says in verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the Baal. So don't think you're the only one left, Elijah. Don't have this martyrdom complex going on with you. Stop, wake up, and understand the facts. I have kept 7,000 men who are just like you for myself. Verse 5. So too at the present time, look at what he says. There is a what? Remnant. Chosen by grace. So when you come back and you look at verse 1, has God rejected his people? Paul says, absolutely no. How do you know? Because there's a remnant. There's a remnant by the apostle Paul being there. There's a remnant by, through God's plan, through his people. And even God's prophet testifies here that there's a remnant chosen by grace. You know, I don't know where you're at today in your faith. I mean, maybe you're, you're not converted. Maybe you haven't been transformed by the grace of God. Maybe you're still stuck in your sins. The Bible says it's kind of like a miry pit. Clay, you can't pull your feet out by yourself. You need help. You need assistance. Well, that verse right there tells us that it's by the grace of God that any of us are saved. So when you find yourself, maybe you're there this morning, maybe you're still stuck in your sin. Don't try to just clean yourself up. Don't try to say, hey, I'm just going to fix everything. You're not. God wants you broken before him. Why? Because then you'll understand his grace. You'll understand his divine favor upon your life, even though you don't deserve it. You'll understand when you turn from your sins and you turn to a Savior, you'll fully understand that, you know what? God has chosen me not because of who I am, but because of who he is. And aren't you glad verse 6 is there too? It says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. What Paul is saying is, you know what? Yeah, Israel's messed up. They haven't done things right. But you know what? That's not the basis upon which God loves them. That's not the basis upon which God has chosen them. Then you know what? Brothers and sisters in Christ, that same spiritual truth is true for us. God didn't choose us because we were, you know, bad-looking, good-looking, whatever. We had certain gifts. No. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we were even here. He divinely set his love upon us. And it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What are you looking to for your salvation? Why do you think you're saved? Why do you think you're on your way to heaven? If your answer is anything other than the grace of God, it's the wrong answer. If your answer is anything other than the work of Christ, it's the wrong answer. And I pray this morning that God would be able to allow you to see your need for a Savior who loves you, who came to this earth, he gave up his life, he died on a cross, he was raised the third day in victory with the Father's approval of his sacrifice over sin and death. And now he invites you to put your faith, your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. When you come to the cross with a broken heart, with a contrite heart, with a proper understanding of your own sinfulness and your own inability to save yourself, God will answer that prayer. And he will transform you. He will change you into the person that he desires you to be. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Elijah and how you worked through him in the Old Testament. I mean, what an incredible illustration of your divine power and your holiness. Lord, it's also a wonderful illustration of how uniquely we all are and how that you can use us in so many different ways if we just yield ourselves to you. And Lord, it's not about us getting the glory. It's not about us getting the honor, but it's about reflecting that over to you. 
and allowing people to come to you and bow their knees to you. And so, Father, we thank you for our salvation. I pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would even now cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need of a Savior. Help me to clearly, more clearly understand that I need to turn from my sin and turn to you. That's a prayer that God will answer if you pray it in faith. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.